Uh, I've had people sending me uh, facial messages. I've had people trying to talk to me without saying anything. Uh, people pointing. Uh, you know what they're trying to tell me? What? That's right. They're, that uh, if you're a visitor here, you don't know what that is, do you? That's just a big old black wall up there. That is no accident. It is intentional. People have been going up to the light booth saying, the light is not on behind the stained glass window. Well, there's a method in our madness and a purpose in this. Many, many years ago, about 35 years ago, when our son Michael, our oldest son, uh, and I were, he was about five or six, we came to church early. He came with me, and we walked into this room. And uh, no one was here, one or two people, and there were some lights on, but there was no light behind the stained glass window. And uh, Mike, who is sitting over here now, may not remember this. I remember it vividly. We were walking down this center aisle, and he asked me, he said, Dad, who's going to turn on Jesus? It stuck in my mind, and it is an appropriate question for me, for you, for us as a church. Who's going to turn on Jesus? Who is going to throw the switch of faith that will let the power of God radiate through us to such a degree that people will see Christ in us and Christ in us will reach out to witness to and to bring light to a world that sits in darkness. Now, it takes an act of faith on a person's part to turn on a light. The power is there. The potential is there. The need is there. But someone needs to do what? Throw the switch. Throw the switch. And when you throw the switch, what happens? Light comes on. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But it is not until I personally throw the switch of faith in my life that Jesus Christ becomes the light of my world. My family, my relationships, my work. Now that window, of course, is only a symbol. That is not Jesus. That is a symbolic representation of his resurrection with outstretched arms inviting the whole world to come to him. That is the message. But behind that symbol is a substance, and that substance is light. And behind every, subst behind every symbol, there is a substance. Behind these symbols that we're going to take here in a few moments, this cup, this bread, behind that is a substance, and the substance is God himself, Christ himself. This is not Christ. That is not Christ. It is he who is the light of the world, and he reveals himself through these symbols to remind us of him. We can take the symbols and still not know the source. We can see this stained glass window and still not know the source, namely Jesus Christ himself, 
the light of the world. So I want to ask myself and I want to ask you a question today. Have you personally thrown the switch of faith to turn Jesus on in your life? Every one of us must do that individually. This ordinance cannot do it for you. Baptism cannot. Church membership cannot. Nothing can but an act of will on your part to say, I turn on Jesus in my life. I want Jesus Christ to be the source of life within me and let his light radiate through me to darken the world, not only inside of me, but to brighten the world inside of me and to brighten the dark world externally all around me. The whole thing turns on a little word, a very small, little, almost insignificant word, one syllable, two letters, if. It's the biggest word in the English vocabulary, if. The biggest word is not supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. The biggest word is if. If are the small hinges on the door of your life. If you open to him, if you turn on him and allow him in, he brings life and light and color and beauty and attraction. If. Paul uses that little word repeatedly in the 8th chapter of Romans. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to it. The 8th chapter of Romans is one of the Mount Everest passages of Scripture in the Bible. It's one of the favorites of many, many of us. In the ninth verse, he says, If you are in the Spirit, the Spirit of God lives in you. If. If you are in the Spirit, the Spirit of God lives in you. Here it is again. If Christ is in you, your spirit is alive. Verse 10. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, you will live. Verse 11. Verse 13. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you live, you will live. 17th verse. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If. It's not a word restricted to the New Testament. Go back to the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah is speaking to the people of God, endeavoring to call them back to a living relationship with him, they had begun to substitute symbols for substance. They had begun to, began to substitute ritual for a real experience, for reality. And he says to his prophet Isaiah, what is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am tired of the burnt offerings and the fat of fed beasts and the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of he goats. I'm tired of that. Who told you to appear before my courts like this? Bring no more vain oblations to me. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. 
learn to do well, cease to do evil, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, plead for the fatherless, care for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Oh, that's a good word, isn't it? Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's a good word. Listen. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as, as wool. If, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land, but if you refuse, you will be devoured with the sword. And I don't know what that means, but I don't want to find out. I think it probably means we'll be devoured by the sword of our own appetites destroying us. If. Now, one of the greatest ifs in all the Bible is in that eighth chapter of Romans, the 31st verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? That was one of John Wesley's favorite passages of Scripture. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now let me say, I hope this sticks in your mind indelibly. I hope it gets written indelibly upon the tablets of your mind and your heart. Listen, whatever you may hear sometimes in Christian sermons or in uh, books or literature, remember this, God is for you. God loves you. God wants you. God cares about you more than you care about yourself. God is for us. And to prove that, to illustrate that, Paul goes on to tell us this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the light of Jesus Christ is within us, if Jesus, the light of the world, has entered my life, and now he is the light of my world. Some tremendous things occur. They occur in my life. They occur in your life. They occur in the life of anyone who will trust him and allow his light in. What's the first thing that happens when you allow the light of Jesus Christ to come into your world? The first thing the light does, the light of Christ within us dispels the darkness of guilt. The darkness of guilt. Now, all of us feel guilty at one time or another. Sometimes it's legitimate. Sometimes it's illegitimate. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes it's something we ought to feel guilty about. Sometimes it's a false guilt or what would be called a neurotic guilt. It would be a guilt that maybe we allow society to place upon us or someone to place upon us. Guilt comes in all shapes and sizes and forms. But listen to this. If you have allowed the light of Jesus Christ to come into your world, the light of Christ will dispel the darkness of guilt. Listen to this. If God is for us, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Listen, guilt serves only one purpose, only one creative purpose. The purpose of guilt is to bring us to Christ. 
Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. When I feel a pain, it's a symptom. It means something is not working inside my body. It's my body's way of saying, hey, something's wrong in here. Something's not right. Something needs to be fixed. Pain is not punishment. Pain is warning. It's a gift of God. It warns us that something needs to be corrected. Well, what pain is to the body, guilt is to the soul. It's not meant to remain there. It's not meant that it's to stay there, that we are to nourish it and cultivate it and let it grow. It means we're to go to the great physician and let him remove the source of that guilt for it means only one thing. Guilt is there to bring us to Christ who will take away our guilt. How did he do it? Because Jesus Christ came and took our guilt for us. It is God who justifies. We cannot justify ourselves. This ordinance cannot. Religion cannot. As Isaiah said, all of the religion in the world that you're participating in will not do it. None of that will cleanse you of guilt. Only God can do that. Bring yourself to him and God will cleanse you of all guilt. It is God who justifies. When the American Bible Society translated the New Testament into the language spoken in Jamaica, it's sort of a pidgin English. It's kind of a strange language and it's beautiful, but it's different. And they translated the Bible into that dialect and they didn't know how to translate the word justifies. And so they worked on it and thought about it and they came up with what I think is a great definition of the word justification. That's a great big 75 cent theological word, justification. Well, they translated it into the Jamaican Bible as God, he say, I'm okay. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Write that down. God, he say, I'm okay. I don't say I'm okay. And books can tell me I'm okay, but I know they're not right. You can tell me I'm okay, but I know there's some things that are not. When God comes along and says, I have taken your guilt. I have justified you. God, he say, I'm okay. You turn on the light of Jesus Christ in your life today and you'll hear him say, you're okay. The light of Christ dissipates the darkness of guilt. Paul's not through. The light of Christ removes the depression of condemnation. The depression of condemnation. My goodness, don't we live in a world filled with condemnation. Everybody condemning everybody else. Everybody pointing fingers and everybody else. It is the biggest news in America today. Condemnation, condemnation. It was the biggest news in Jesus' day. Condemnation. They drug a woman before Jesus had been caught in the very act of adultery. They were going to stone her to death because that's what the law required. You know the story. Jesus reached down and started writing some the sand. <clears throat> we don't know what he wrote. It's the only thing that he's ever recorded is having written, and we don't know what it was. A lot of people have surmised and guessed at what it might have been. Uh, my son Stephen has an idea. He said what Jesus was writing in the sand were the names of the men who had had sexual intercourse with that woman. And then he erased it. I don't know whether that's what he did or not, or whatever it was, 
they started dropping the stones when Jesus said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he said, where are you? Where are those who condemn you? And she said, they're not here. You know what he said? Neither do I condemn you. I didn't even hear her ask for forgiveness. I don't know that she even demonstrated any repentance. I just heard him say, I don't condemn you. Go and change your life. It's not working the way you're going. Sin no more. John reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be made okay. That the world through him might be saved. Do you know what Jesus Christ does? The pointed finger of religious accusation. Jesus turns in to the outstretched hand of reconciliation. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden with condemnation or guilt or sin. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the church stopped pointed, pointing fingers and started extending hands? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Let's remind ourselves that every time we point the finger at someone else, we still have three fingers pointing at ourselves. He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. When the light of Christ comes on in your life, when you throw the switch of faith, he removes the depression of condemnation. And then finally, and this may be the most helpful word to be said, when we allow the light of Christ to fill our world, to fill our hearts, to fill our lives, he dissipates the fear of separation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists a long line of powerful separators. Listen to them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Then he jumps a little further ahead and he said, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you let the light of Jesus Christ come on into you, come into your life, when you by faith throw that switch of faith to on, when he comes into your life, nothing Absolutely nothing. No problem in this life. No demon in hell. No power above or below. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he uses the word love three times to underline it. 
And that's why he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. The greatest conqueror in the world is not Genghis Khan, not Napoleon, not Alexander the Great, not Caesar, not Hitler. The greatest commander in the world is the commanding power of the love of God to change human hearts and to bring us all into the kingdom of light and life. Separation. I don't like to be separated. I don't like to be separated for a few hours, even a day or two from my children or grandchildren. I just want to touch base with them. I don't like to say goodbye. I remember when Martha and I drove Michael, our oldest son, up to Baylor, all excited, going to Baylor. That Jerusalem on the Brazos. Uh, upstream from A&M, as you know. We took Mike up to Baylor. We wanted him to go there. He wanted to go there. He was excited about going there. And we moved all that stuff up there, and he moved into, was it Pendleton Hall? Is that where you moved? I think that's where it was. Never been the same since. But we moved him, moved him in there, and then Martha and I drove home. And it was about an hour before we said anything. I didn't want to try to say anything. I missed him already. I knew if I started talking, I'd start crying. So I just kind of gritted my teeth and drove home. He was where I wanted him to be. He was where he wanted to be and where he needed to be. It was wonderful. I just missed the separation. Well, I thought maybe that cured me. Three years later, loaded Steve up to take him up to Baylor. Went up there, wanted him to go. He wanted to go. Took him up there and he moved into the dorm. We started home. Thought, well, I can handle it better this time. I didn't handle it any better. Maybe worse because both of them were up there. It was wonderful. I was glad for them and for us and grateful for the privilege that they had to go. But I miss them. But listen, <clears throat> when we let Jesus Christ come into our lives by turning on his light within us, and the Christ in me reaches out to the Christ in you, and the Christ in me reaches out to the Christ in my mother and my father and Ralph Buckner and Bob Buckner and Becky Fanning and all those in my family who have preceded me to the heavenly shore. I can't see them anymore, and I can see Mike and Steve at Baylor, but we're still together, and someday when he comes back as the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords, we'll all be together in the Father's house forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's why we celebrate, because Christ came to bring us back into the garden. Now, those of you who are Bible students, let me quickly point out, go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in your mind. What happened? Adam and Eve were created because God wanted to create fellowship. God wanted fellowship. And he said, here's a perfect life for you. Now, don't do this because life won't work for you if you do that. Leave that alone. But they decided they knew better than God, like all of us have at one time or another. 
and we made our own choice. They made their own choice. What were the three results of Adam and Eve's choice? First one was guilt. They hid themselves among the trees of the garden. They felt guilty, and they were guilty. What was the second result of their disobedience? Condemnation. God said, you did wrong. Adam, you did wrong. Eve, you did wrong. Serpent, you did wrong. Condemnation. What was the third result of their disobedience? Separation. What did God do? He sent patriarchs to try to call them back. He sent prophets out to try to call them back. And then you know what he did finally and completely? He came in person. He left the garden to come to our wilderness to take away our guilt and our condemnation and our separation and bring us back into the Eden of an eternal relationship with the living God. Paul tells us he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And he died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for my condemnation. He died on the cross and was temporarily separated from God, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me so that I would never have to cry that? He went through hell so that I could know heaven and you could. And that's why we celebrate this. It is through his death, burial, and resurrection that our guilt is gone and our condemnation is gone and separation is obliterated. And we are now one in Christ and will be one with Christ throughout the endless eternity to come. When you take this, element. Remember him. Remember him. Deacons, please stand. Paul writing in the first book to the church of, the, of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. Amen.
Don't, uh, don't close your eyes, but I'd like you just to look down into that cup for a moment. It's red, symbolic of the blood he shed for us. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus Christ gave his life to take away our sin. This is why we take this cup. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Sitting here sharing in this communion, I had a thought that had not crossed my mind in a long while. It was over 50 years ago in a little Methodist church in Nagasaki, Japan, where I started going to church as an occupying Marine in that atomic bomb devastated city. I hadn't been to church in a long, long time. And the Japanese Christians, about 30 or 40 in number, served me communion. I didn't begin to realize the significance of that until years later. But they were saying, we're one in Christ. We're brothers. Christ died for you. He died for us. He forgave you. He forgives us. He forgives the whole world. If we will but let his light into our lives. I want to invite you to trust him this morning. Invite him into your life to throw that switch of faith. To come forward to say, I want to follow Christ. Or to say, I want to be a part of this church. Maybe you're a Christian belonging to another church. Or maybe you're a Christian never joined a church. But you want to be a part of a fellowship of people who endeavor to worship the Lord. We invite you to be a part of this fellowship. You don't have to bring any recommendations, any references. Just yourself. If you want to come and kneel and pray and go back to your seat, that's wonderful. Many people do that often. <clears throat> you may want to come and rededicate your life, as two did in the earlier service this morning. This is the Lord's invitation, not Buckner's. And all I want you to do is what the Spirit of God is prompting you to do, which is why we're saying, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Will you? Let's stand and sing.